Fathers, we come to this great story about the creation of Eve and how uh, you made Eve for Adam and Adam for Eve. And uh, what a great story we have here. Uh, great lessons for all of us, especially those of us who are married. And uh, Lord, uh, there's also a lesson on submission here. And uh, we just ask that you teach us that. Father, I just ask that uh, today, by the power of your spirit, that you show us just what it means to, to submit to one another, just what it means to, to submit in marriage, Lord, and just what it means to submit to you. Because, Lord, you submitted everything you had. You gave everything you had. You gave your only begotten Son that uh, we might have eternal life. And, and Lord, I just ask that uh, you, you uh, touch our hearts and, and remind us of just what a great act that was, a great act of love and a great act of submission, Lord, so that we, uh, we can submit to you. Uh, Lord in love and I, I just ask that you teach us the lessons you would have us to learn here today as we look at this text in Genesis and I ask that you do it by the power of your Holy Spirit I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ it's in his precious name that I pray amen you know I always wanted to teach a class on submission uh, but my wife wouldn't let me so I have begged her and she still wouldn't let me but today she's working in the nursery. And so if she doesn't come back, we're actually going to do a course on submission today. Uh, uh, and in honor of that, I don't know if most of y'all realize it or not, but today is Diane's birthday. Now, Diane has been asking me to do this class on submission. Her, her and Sarah... And I was searching the internet to find something appropriate for her birthday. Uh, and I found this t-shirt. I want to give it to her. And it goes along with our course today. And I know she's going to wear it. Y'all see it. Y'all probably see it on a lot of Sundays. So I'll show it to you anyway. But uh, let me open it up here. Yeah, would you fold it back for me when I get done here? No, she's not going to throw it away. It says, proud to be called a submissive wife. <laughs> I had to look hard. Now, all of you women that want one of these, you can see me after church. I don't want you to feel left out. I'll get you one, too. And you men that uh, uh, you husbands, you might want to get, some of you husbands might want to get one of these also, so see me after church and I'll get you one. There's a card in there too, Diane. I, actually, I think the card is funny in the shirt, but I'm not going to show them the card. <laughs> Seriously. We are going to talk about submission today because submission is one of the main themes of the book of Genesis. Uh, it's, you could call it a course in submission because when you look at the first chapter and a half of Genesis, you get the creation account and it establishes God as the creator. And if God is the creator, then he has a right to demand our submission. The number one reason, I have no doubt, that people attack the creation account in Genesis is that they do not want God as their creator. 
it's not because there's more evidence for evolution or uh, macroevolution than there is for uh, the uh, account we're given in Genesis, the creation account that God created all things. It's not that there's more evidence for that creation account than there is for God's creation account. Uh, it, it, on the contrary, if you use your common sense and you study the subject diligently, you will see that there's plenty of evidence for a six-day creation and uh, evidence for God as the creator. But people don't want God as their creator. And so they've come up with this evolutionary account to deny God as the creator because if they believe that God is the creator, then we, it makes sense then that we would be required to submit to that God. And people don't want to submit to God. People want to do what's right in their own eyes. They don't want to submit to his word and they don't want to submit to his law. You just look at what's going on in our country today. You look at what's going on with the Supreme Court nomination. The left isn't so concerned about this guy's moral background. That's not the issue. They're concerned about who he is and what he stands for. He stands for the Constitution of the United States of America. And so they're attacking him not because of his moral... Uh, they know that all of that's, a lot of that's made up. They know that all of that happened if it did happen when he was just a kid in high school. That's not the issue. The issue is that the man believes in our Constitution. He believes in the laws of this country. He believes in the laws of God. And so... He's going to stand in the way of abortion, killing little babies. He's going to stand in the way they think of homosexual marriage. He's going to stand in the way of the things that people want to do that are immoral, and everybody wants to do what's right in their own eyes. And so, so uh, uh, I don't care. I do care what people believe, but it's really sad that we've come to a point that people have denied God his role as creator because they do not want to submit to Almighty God. Uh, you also, you see, uh, uh, this uh, subject of submission uh, in, the, in what we're going to be looking at today, in the last part of Genesis uh, chapter 2, we're going to look at the role of submission in the family unit and, and how it applies specifically to marriage. Then when we get to chapter 3, we're going to look at the consequences of non-submission, of not submitting to God. As we see Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, and they fall into sin, and they take the whole human race with them. And then when we get to chapters 6 and 7, we're going to be looking at the penalty of non-submission uh, that's been exacted on the whole human race that was exacted on them during the flood, that's going to be exacted on them again when Christ returns, and uh, before he returns in the Great Tribulation, when this earth is virtually destroyed by fire. Uh, all of that is the penalty for non-submission. But here's the good news. When we get to chapter 12 and we get to the story of Abraham, we're going to see the beginnings of redemption. And that redemption comes through faith. But here's what I want you to see, and we'll look at this when we get to chapter 12 and thereafter as we look at uh, this story of faith, of the faith of Abraham and Jacob and the 12 sons. We're going to be looking at that. But with faith comes submission. James put it like this. James said, James said that, that uh, Abraham had faith, but his faith was justified by his works, by what he did, by how he exercised that faith. 
Abraham, we know Abraham had faith because when the Lord called him to leave his family and go to, uh, to the promised land, uh, Abraham packed it up and left. He did exactly what God told him to do. He submitted to God Almighty. We also know that when Abraham was asked, he waited all those years, 25 years, to have a son, and he finally had a son at his old, in his old age, and he was asked to sacrifice that son. And what did Abraham do? He submitted to that uh, uh, command of God, and he took uh, uh, Isaac up on Mount Moriah, uh, we'll see that in chapter 22, to sacrifice him. And so we see Abraham's faith exercised by his submission. Now listen to me. If you, if you can call yourself a Christian all you want, but if you're not submitting to God, you do not have real faith. Real faith produces submission. If you love the Lord, you're going to submit to the Lord. And you're going to do the things he tells you to do when he tells you to do things. They go hand in hand, and we'll explore that later on. But today we want to look at this subject of submission as it relates to marriage. And we're going to see that uh, in the story of uh, the creation of Adam's wife, Eve. And we're going to pick that up if you go in your Bibles to chapter 2 of Genesis and pick up now in verse number 18. And listen to what the Lord says. I love this line right here. And the Lord said, in verse 18, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper. Now watch this. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now, this isn't the story. I mean, God didn't one day arbitrarily say, Oh, look at uh, Adam. He looks so all alone. You know what I think I'll do? I think I'll make him a helpmate comparable to him. That's not how it happened. God planned before the foundation of the world to make Eve. This story is put into what I call anthropomorphic terms, in, in human terms, so that we can understand and relate to the story. But this was part of the sovereign will and part of the election of God to create Eve. It was part of the plan he laid before the foundation of the world. So, so this isn't just a capricious move on the Lord. All right, now, here's what I want you to see here. Looking at... Verse 18, look at what he says, I will make him a help, helper comparable to him. Now, in most cases where this Hebrew word for comparable is translated, it's translated as over against or opposite. In other words, what he's saying here, I will make him a helper opposite to him. But really comparable works here because there's kind of a paradox between a man and a woman. They are comparable. They're both human beings, but they're also the opposite because one is male and one is female. And so uh, uh, we, we see this playing out in this strange word here that could mean either one of those things, comparable or uh, opposite. You know, someone once put it like this, and, and I'm going to quote this, so bear with me here. It's, listen to what he says. He says, God created man and woman not like to like, but like to difference. Yet in the long years of marriage, liker they must grow still distinct individualities, but like each other as those who love each other. Let me read that to you again. God created man and woman not like to like, not exactly the same, but like comparable yet opposite, like to difference. Yet in the long years of marriage, 
the more they become like each other. Have you noticed that? You notice how much Winford and Diane are alike? I, I mean, they actually look alike. They talk alike. They're alike. We become more and more alike. Brenda and I are a lot alike. I mean, Brenda and I look alike. No, we don't look alike. But we're a lot alike. And I got to tell you, over the years, we, that wasn't the way it was when we first got married. We were pretty much opposite. But Brenda has, you know, she's, you know, used the whip and she's got me to be a lot more like her. No, you, you just grow that way. You actually, I think what happens in marriage over the years, when a couple, uh, when the uh, spouse and uh, each of the spouses love each other, what happens over the years, I mean, you pick up the good traits of your spouse. You see that oh, every day. You see the good things that your spouse does every day, and you see that. You say, you know, I want to be like that. I remember when I first uh, got married to Brenda, I was one of the most impatient men who ever lived, and I'm not like that anymore. Now, but let me tell you, you think I'm impatient. I'm a lot more patient than I used to be. But I saw her patience over the years, and I liked that trait in her. And I asked God, to, I, first of all, I asked him to, to, to help me learn patience. And then I said, no, you know, he showed me real quick, I'm not going to learn it. But then I asked him to give me patience. And over the years, he's given me more and more patience. And in that sense, I've become more and more like my wife. And so over the years, what we do, we grow into what God intended us to be. And that is to be, we'll see in a minute, one flesh. We grow together as one, as those who love each other. Now, look at verses 19 and 20, and he's going to introduce the situation here where uh, Adam was at when Eve was created. If you go to uh, uh, verse number 19, pick up with me there in chapter number 2. And he says, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air uh, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature that was the name now look at the free will that god has given adam here god doesn't say okay here are the names of the the animals and i want you to memorize all these names or i want you to write down all of these names what he says to adam he says i want you to name them yep i'm gonna the animals are going to come before you and i want you to name every animal he, he doesn't name the the uh, crawling things uh he doesn't name the fish but everything else Adam is going to be, give a name to. And so uh, he's going to do exactly what the Lord has called him to do. And so Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, you know, Adam didn't have a mate. There was not a mate, helper comparable to him. All right, now, Here's what I want you to notice. One of the things I want you to notice in this little account we get here in these three verses right here is look at Adam. Does Adam look like someone here who he just has just evolved from an ape? No. He's a highly intelligent man. He's not some caveman. He's not some uh, uh, ape-like human being. Uh, and I'll tell you what, he wasn't, if, if evolution is true, then this account, again, you can just throw it out all the way because uh, Adam would not have been alone. He would have had parents and he would have had siblings. They would have been maybe more ape-like than human-like, but he wouldn't have been all alone. God said he was all alone. And that's the reason God, one of the reasons God is making Eve for him so that he won't be all alone. Now, 
Adam was probably the most intelligent man who ever lived. And the reason he was is because he, at that point, he had not sinned, and his mind had not been marred by sin. Let me tell you what, sin mars your mind. I mean, if you, if you have done drugs in the past, you know, you've probably fried your brain a little bit. You've done a lot of alcohol in the past, you've probably fried your brain a little bit. You've eaten a lot of sugar, you've probably messed up with your brain. That's why in our society today we see so many people with Alzheimer's and all sorts of diseases of the mind because sin has marred their minds. And I, we all sin, so we are all... Uh, uh, capable of having those diseases, and hopefully none of us get those diseases, but you can see that Adam didn't have any of that. So he was probably the most intelligent man who ever lived. We know that he spoke a, a, a language. I don't know that he wrote at this point, but he had to be pretty intelligent because he names all of the animals. I mean, every single one of them, all the birds. I mean, you take all the, all the, the number of birds that are out there, and he gives them all a name, and he does all of this in one day. Now, what language did he speak? Uh, we don't know. Uh, uh, possibly, I, I lean towards it being Hebrew because I believe that's what will be the universal language when we uh, go into the millennium. I believe we'll all speak Hebrew. That's, that's just my belief. That's not necessarily true, but, but uh, it's quite possible. So, some type of Arab, Aramaic language, uh, I believe probably Hebrew. And, and what a mind this guy had to have. I mean, to give the names to, look at this, he, to all the domesticated animals. I mean, to every bird. I mean, you talk about a master bird watcher. I mean, he was it. I mean, he could name every single bird. I remember my dad used to love to sit out on his screened-in porch, and, and uh, he had all of these bird feeders out there, and all sorts of exotic birds would come in and, and land on those feeders. And I remember he would see those birds and he'd get out his book and try to find the name of that bird. It was, and, you, and the book was this thick with different types of birds that are, that are native to North America. And I mean, he would go through that book looking for that bird. And then he'd have to go through it the next time the bird came because he didn't remember it. But here was Adam. I mean, he saw these birds and I mean, he remembered the name of every single one of them and all the beasts. Uh, and he did it all in one day. Now, a lot of people say that's impossible. That's impossible because there's too many animals and too many birds for Adam to be able to name them all day in one day. And then how in the world would he chase all of these animals down and all of these birds down uh, in one day? Well, the answer's pretty obvious. I mean, first of all, we know that Adam had a great mind and so he could remember all things. I mean, his mind was, was a perfectly functioning computer so he could remember all things. And there weren't as many animals back then as there are now because we hadn't had all of those uh, horizontal variations that take place within a kind. And so, so basically you had the different kinds of animals and uh, that would have limited the number of animals to about the number of animals that went into the ark. And so it wouldn't have been that many animals. And then you wonder how he chased the animals down. I don't think he had to chase them down. No more than Noah had to chase them down. God brought those animals, I believe, in pairs, one pair after the other, uh, and he brought them before Adam, and uh, Adam was able to name them. All right, now, now we come to the real story here, the creation of Eve. And when does it take place? When does the creation of Eve take place? That's a question that scholars have debated. And a lot of scholars would look at this and, and the way this narrative goes. I mean, here's Adam. He's all alone, and it looks like he's been alone for a while. And, 
and uh, it looks like uh, uh, he's spending some time naming the animals, and then one day after maybe months or years, God comes and he says, look at Adam, he's all alone, let me make him a mate comparable to him. That's kind of way that reads, but we know that's not the case. Eve had to be created on the sixth day, because that's what the Word of God tells us. Uh, look, uh, look with me back to verse uh, chapter 1. It's something we've already looked at, but look in chapter 1, verse number 27. So God created the man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Okay, and then you jump down to verse 28. Then God blessed, not him, God blessed them. And then you jump all the way down to verse number 31. When did all that take place? Look at the last part of verse number 31. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So unless Adam had another woman and she died or something, which we know that's not the case because death hadn't entered into the world at this point, then we know that Adam was created and Eve was created on the sixth day. We know that also because remember what Jesus said when he, he quoted this very passage here and he said that in the beginning God made them male and female. So from the very beginning of creation, that first six days of creation, uh, Adam and Eve were there. And now, look how he creates Eve. Let's go to, to and I love this part right here. Chapter uh, 2, verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept. And he took one of his ribs. Uh-oh. Now, that's a problem, the critics say. He took a rib. And if he took a rib, then that would mean that every man would have one less rib than the woman has. Well, we know that's not the case. We have the same amount of ribs. I don't know if I've never counted mine, but I've been told that we have the same amount of ribs. Uh, men have the same amount of ribs that the women have. So why, would, why wouldn't there be one less rib? Well, let me ask you a question. I'll ask, bring that back to the critic. If someone, a man was to lose his arm and he had children, how many arms would his children have? One arm or two arms? They would have two arms. Adam was created to have the same amount of ribs as women. Maybe God took one of those ribs out. Uh, and then when the, the children came, they had a full set of ribs. And so that makes sense. So we can blow that off right away. But there's still a problem here. Let's look at this. It says, or still an issue we need to address. It says, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he, now, some people have a problem. How could God do that out of a rib? How could he make a, uh, uh, a woman out of a rib? How could God make a man out of the dust of the earth? I mean, God can do anything he wants to do. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He, he can do anything he wants. Then the rib was, which the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to man and Adam said, and look at what he says. He said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, and we've joked about that, woe man, but she shall be called woman. And there's a reason for that, the way that translation is, because she was taken out of man. Now, first of all, let me raise this question. If all Adam needed, and I'm going to address the issue through what I'm saying of the importance of women. 
If all Adam needed was a helpmate, God could have just created what? He could have created another man. He could have given him some robots or something. I mean, he could have had companionship with a man. Now, that's hard to think of now we have women. Having been married, I mean, I couldn't imagine, uh, you know, having companionship like I have with a man like I have with my wife. Some people say they do. I kind of doubt that. But, but I, you know, I can see now this side of the, the story why God created women to be comparable to man and compatible to man. So, so God knew what he was doing. God made Adam, and he made me, and he made you incomplete without a mate. I mean, I believe that's the way God created us. I mean, God, Adam needed Eve before he even knew he was going to get Eve. He needed Eve. God created him to need Eve. And there's a spiritual application here to the church, too, in our relationship with God, and we'll talk about that a little later on. But he created Adam with a void so that he would be alone until he had Eve. Now, here's where the issue comes in. If you look back at the text, you see that Hebrew word there, rib, and you see it on a couple occasions. Thirty-five times in the Old Testament that word appears elsewhere, and not one time is it translated rib. It's always translated side. Now, what does that tell you? More than likely, what should it be translated here? It should be translated side. Now, certainly I understand there's an interpolation going on there because it came from the side. Somebody said way back when they made the first translation, English translation, they said, well, we'll take, make it a rib. Okay, but it's really the Hebrew word there simply means side. So we know that God took, let me retranslate it for you. Go back to verse 21. And the Lord God caused a sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took from his side and then closed his side uh, and the, uh, closed, up, closed up the flesh in its place. So he took something from Adam's side. It might have been a rib. It might have been uh, some flesh. It might have been some bone. I, I mean, I think it was probably a combination of that. But the most important thing, let me tell you what the most important thing that he took from his side was Adam's blood. That's why Adam could say, Bone, he, she's now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh because she had Adam's blood. Look, the, the life of the body is in the blood. The DNA of the body is in the blood. The blood sustains the ribs. It sustains the flesh. It sustains the body. So the most important thing that was taken from Adam's side was Adam's blood. Now, what does all of that have to do with submission? I mean, why did God take it from his side? He could have taken a piece of hair from Adam, and the DNA's in the hair. So he could, create it, he could have created Eve from his hair, but he was making a point here. And here's the point, and I think Matthew Henry nails it on the head in his commentary in Genesis. Listen to what he says. He says, God didn't take her from the head so she could be superior to the man. He didn't do that. Boy, y'all got quiet on that one. <laughs> or, he didn't, or he didn't take her from the, his foot so that she would be inferior to the man. 
he makes, God made a point here. He took her from his side so that she would be equal to him. God created us different, but he created us alike. There's that paradox there. Eve was created equal to Adam, but opposite to Adam. And so together, so, as, so that together they become one or became one. Now, looking back at this again, the Hebrew word here for man is the Hebrew word ish. And the Hebrew woman for, I mean, the Hebrew word for woman here is isha. And so all that word means is from man. Eve was created from man. She was, God created both male and female. Both of them are ish. She's from man. That's the only difference. Both were created what? In the image of God. And they were created comparable, but yet opposite. Now here's the problem. That was pre-fall. That's the way they were created to be. Equal. Totally equal. But what happened in the garden? Adam and Eve fell. And Adam, Eve was, was deceived, but Adam wasn't deceived. Adam's was out and out rebellion. We'll talk about that when we get to this fall next week. But, but uh, they were created in perfect unity. After the fall, they were no longer in perfect unity. And so God at that point instituted submission in the marriage because Adam and Eve no longer were in perfect union with him. And they certainly weren't in perfect union with each other. And so there was going to be all sorts of problems in their marriage if God didn't give the command for one or give the order for the man to be over the woman. That's the way he set it up. Now, go with me over to, to Genesis chapter 3. Let me show you a passage there that makes this point. Listen to what God says when he, when he pronounces this punishment upon Adam and Eve. Listen to what he says in the last part of verse number 16. He says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Let me, let me, let me give you a better translation of that. And, and, and that's taking the wooden Hebrew and now putting it into context. Listen, listen to what this should say. Your desire shall be to rule over your husband. That's your nature. See, if you've got a wife that wants to rule your house, that's, that's her nature. She was made equal with you, and it's a hard thing to be in that position where you have to submit. We all hate to submit to authority. It's not in our fallen nature. Before, they submitted to one another without any problem. But now there's a problem, and so God sets an order. And he says, your desire will be to rule over your husband, yet, or but, don't put the and there, but he shall rule over you. That's the way I'm setting things up. Not because you aren't equal. Paul says we're all equal in Christ. But I'm setting it up because now you're going to live in a fallen world. You're going to live in a fallen relationship. You're going to live in a fallen relationship within your marriage, within your family, and with me. And you're going to have a lot of problems as it is. And there's going to have to be somebody in charge. And I'm putting the husband in charge. And he could have just as well put the wife in charge. And we'd be the one submitting. In some marriages, that's the way it is. But, but that's the way God set it up. But now here's the kicker. How many of you are born-again believers? How many of you here are married? 
Okay? Here's the kicker. When, we, when the husband gets saved and the wife gets saved and you're truly born again, listen to me, to some degree, especially in your relationship with your husband or with your wife, in some degree that curse has been reversed and we go back to way think, the way the things were before the fall. See, that's why Paul, speaking to Christians in a Christian marriage, in chapter 5 of Ephesians, begins that passage by saying, submitting one to another. In other words, submission goes back in a Christian marriage to being what God intended it to be. And that is that we submit to one another. I mean, what is submitting? If you look at the cover of your bulletins today, there's a big yield sign right there. That's all it is. I mean, you come to a yield sign, and what do you do? You submit to the other person that's coming so, so you don't crash into that person. I mean, it makes common sense. And that's what submission is. It's submitting your needs so, you know, you just back off. And you submit to that other person so that you don't have those crashes. And so, submitting, we submit one another. To another, Paul says in Ephesians 5, uh, wives to husbands, and husbands, we submit to our wives as Christ submitted to the church and gave his life for her. That's pretty strong submission. Who's got the, role, the, the toughest role in submission? The husband does. We're to, we're to submit our lives to our wives. We're to be willing to lay down our lives for our wives. You know, I've, this works in my marriage, and I don't know about your marriage, and, and, and I don't do much marriage counseling, because usually when you go to do marriage counseling, people don't want to do it the biblical way. They don't want to submit one, to one another. I, I, have, I see two problems. I see a wife that refuses to submit to her husband, and she wants to rule the house, or I see a husband who thinks that he's got a biblical right to lord over his wife, and both of those are not biblical if you're in a Christian marriage. They're not biblical. You have, became, you have become, if you're married, you have become one flesh. You have become one in the Spirit of God. And there's unity in that. I mean, I never, I, I mean, in 29 years of marriage, since being a Christian, I have never found a, not one situation in my marriage where Brenda and I prayed for something where God told Brenda to do one thing and told me to do another thing. We've always been unified in our decisions. They don't start out that way. But when we pray for the things that, that we're about to do, we pray before we do them, we always come to the same conclusion. In 29 years, it works. And the reason it works is because we're submitted one to the other, but mainly we're submitted to God. And we want what God wants for our marriage. And if you submit your marriage to the Lord then you're going to be submitted one to the other. And it works for a great marriage. And I feel sorry for those people that don't do that. Where you got the husband trying to lord over his wife and tell his wife what she's going to wear, what she's going to do. That's not what it's about. I mean, we, we, if, if it came down to it, let's put it this way, and, and there was some big decision out there and I was going to buy this house and my, didn't wife, my wife didn't want me to buy this house, I should listen to her first of all. But then I would have, biblically, I would have the authority to overrule her decision. But it never works like that. 
If you're in a Christian marriage and you're giving your decisions to the Lord, you'll never run into that situation. If you do, I promise you, you're not, you're not, in a, you're not praying as you should to the Lord. You're not giving your life as you should to the Lord. You both give your life to, to the Lord and you both give your marriage to the Lord and you will be unified in all that you do. Now, God does the, something really cool here next. He, he performs a wedding service. And I think it's a wedding service not just for Adam and Eve. It's a wedding service for all couples who get married. Look at, look at it's short and sweet. I mean, we get it in verse number 24. And I mean, you got the simplest, I mean, you could turn this into vows. You got the simplest, most profound vows ever spoken. Listen to what God says. He says, therefore, Adam, that really doesn't apply to you because you don't have a father and mother yet. But man, all of you husbands, you shall leave your father and your mother, and you shall be joined to your wife, and you shall become one flesh. Do you agree with that? If so, I pronounce you man and wife. But that's the standard. I mean, a man shall leave his father and mother, he shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And what's good for the goose is good for the gander. I mean, the, the woman is, shall leave her father and mother and be joined to her husband, and they shall become one flesh. Now, notice, well, let me go back here for a second. I have seen a lot of marriages fail right here on this first issue. Women that refuse to leave their father and mother are husbands that refuse to leave their father and mother and be joined to their wife. We're to, we're to leave, when we get married, we're to leave our parents, and we're to be joined with our wife. That's the way marriage should be. Wives, you should be joined to your husband. That's the way God intended marriage to be. Does that mean we don't respect our parents? No. Does that mean we don't uh, see our parents anymore? No. But we don't cling to our parents anymore. We cling to our spouse. And if you're still clinging to your parents and you're in your marriage and you're clinging to your parents and you're running to your mom every time you got a problem or you're running to your dad every time you got a problem, you're, gonna, you're, you're, you're on a road to disaster because that is not the way God intended marriage. All right. Now, notice God's ideal for marriage. He says one, one he, you can look at this. He, he uses the term man, singular. He uses the term woman, singular. So he's talking about one man joined to one wife. And they become how many fleshes? One flesh. Now it's really sad, and I kind of wish it hadn't happened because people use this as an excuse to, to go astray. But it's really sad, but some of the greatest men in the Bible were polygamists. I mean, you look at Abraham. He was a polygamist. Jacob was a polygamist. David was a polygamist. I mean, Solomon, uh, Brandon talked about Solomon the other night. I mean, ha having, what, 700 wives? I mean, that, that's polygamy, I can tell you. That, that, that's a plethora of polygam polygamy. And so, uh, I mean, uh, that is not God's ideal. And Brandon talked a lot about how, how that worked to destroy Solomon and Solomon's kingdom. It's what ended up the cause of the breakup of, the northern, of Israel into the northern and southern kingdom. And so it was costly. 
so God's ideal is not for polygamy. I mean, he allows polygamy, but that's not his ideal. Moses, you look at Moses, and Moses gave out certificates of divorce to people who just couldn't get along. And, and so divorce was allowed in the Bible, but that was not God's ideal. When God created Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, listen to what he said. He says there, he says in verse 28, he says, uh, let me find it there. He says, be, what, what did he command them to do? More than name the animals, what was their main job? I want you to be fruitful and I want you to multiply. In other words, your main job isn't naming the animals or, or, or producing crops or picking fruit. Your main job is to raise a family in a godly home with one husband and one wife. Now, here's something else I want to look at and, and address for just a minute. Which I, I think is really a fascinating topic to explore. And that is, God created Adam and Eve to be eternal beings, didn't he? You agree with that? How long did he intend for them then to be married? Ever thought about that? Did, did he create them to be married for 100 years and then they get a divorce? He created them as eternal beings to be, to be married forever. I mean, their marriage was created to last Forever. And it would have lasted forever if they hadn't have sinned. That's why Jesus put it like this over in Mark 10, verse 9. And I want you to listen to the very first part of this very carefully here. What God has joined together, Adam and Eve, example. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Not ever. I believe not ever. See, the problem with most marriages, at least this is my belief and my experience, is that God didn't join the couple together. They joined themselves together. And they were on a road to destruction before they even got started. I mean, the, the, when God joins two together, God says about that marriage, let no man separate that marriage. So I believe, because that's the way God created marriage, and some of you aren't going to like this because you don't really like your marriage. But if you really like your marriage, like I like my marriage, I really like this. I mean, some, I believe that we were intended when God joins a couple together. Now look, you could have gotten joined together on your own, and then you gave your marriage to the Lord, and all of a sudden God has sanctified that marriage, and he's joined you together. And so, so I believe that works for this too. But I believe, I personally believe that if, it's quite possible that some Christian marriages are meant to last forever. I, I believe that. Uh, the Bible's clear. We won't get married in heaven, and we won't have children in heaven, but, he, but that doesn't rule out being married in heaven. You won't get married in heaven, but if you're already married, and it's a marriage put, where you've been put together by God, and you're still together, then I think it's quite possible that you'll stay together throughout eternity. Listen to what Peter says over in, when he was speaking of Christian marriages over in 1 Peter. Listen to what he says in chapter 3. He says, Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel, and being, now watch this, 
heirs together of eternal life, of the grace of life, which is eternal life. Heirs means what? That means you inherit it, and you inherit it together. Heirs together of eternal life, the life that's given to us through Jesus Christ. Why? Because we've been joined together, and we're one spiritually, and I believe if you have a Christian marriage, you will be one spiritually with your spouse forever. Now, if your marriage isn't a Christian marriage, and your marriage really isn't a marriage that God put together, I'm not going to say that's true for everyone. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hands. Do you want to be with your wife or your husband the rest of your life? I'm not, gonna, I'm not bold enough to ask that either. I'll say I want to be with my wife the, the rest of my life and forever. And hopefully you do too. And it's not too late if your marriage, it doesn't seem like that's the way you want it for your marriage. It's not too late to, to fix that. So, so give it to the Lord and, and let him put you together like he intends to put you together. Now, we don't have any little ones in here. Yeah, we do. We got one little one. Uh, uh, go ahead. There's a sexual lesson here, too. Okay? Is he okay? He's okay. You all right, Nathan? <laughs> Y'all talk, put your hands over those babies' ears back there. There's a sexual lesson here. Listen to me. Uh, and, and boy, have, has our society lost sight of this principle. Sexual intercourse is meant to be an ecstatic experience which is a physical expression of spiritual unity. Did you get that? It's, uh, that's what sex is meant to be. It is an expression of our, between a husband, one man, and one woman, an expression of their spiritual unity. That's what sex is, and that's what makes it so wonderful. And that's why adultery and sex out, any sex outside of marriage just doesn't work. Because you have the ecstatic experience, but you don't have it spiritually. You just have it physically. And that's, you're trashing what God intended to be this wonderful experience between a husband and a wife. And, and that makes it an aberration. And, and let me say, you know, I don't think it can be any clearer than this. I mean, he, he says the man and his wife become one flesh. Let me tell you what, that rules out homosexual marriage. It just rules it out. Because I don't care how hard they try, and I don't want to get too explicit here, but two men cannot be joined together as one. And they do all sorts of things to make that happen, but it never will happen. Why? Because common sense says God didn't intend that to happen. That's the, not the way he created us. He created sexual intercourse for a loving experience, a spiritual experience even, between one man and one woman, one husband and one wife. You can't take two bolts and join them together. I don't care how hard you try. It takes a nut and a bolt. It takes a man and a wife to be joined together as one flesh. And anything else 
is sick. It's an aberration. Now, I'm not saying that people can't come out of that. And I'm not, some of y'all might have been in homosexual relationships in your life. But you know it's sick. You know it's wrong. You know it's an aberration of what God intended sex to be. And, and in this society, rule out the creator. You've got to rule him out right away because God says it's, it's an abomination to him. So, so let's just say we evolved from apes and then no longer is an abomination. But you know what? I don't see apes doing it. So it's got to be an abomination to them too. So, so we know just common sense says that that is wrong. And then we come to the last verse for today, verse number 25. And it says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife. And watch this. And they were not ashamed. Now, there's some people in this society that, you know, they streak through football stadiums and stuff. I think they're, they're either high or drunk because they're probably really deep down inside when they, when they see what they've done, they're ashamed. But here was this man and this woman, and they were both naked, and they were not ashamed. And let me tell you why they weren't ashamed, because they weren't perverted in any way. They were perfectly innocent in all their thoughts. Can't you wait till the day comes again when we're like that? When our minds and souls and hearts have been cleansed in a way that we, we don't think a perverted thought? I mean, we're all perverted to some degree. I mean, because we, 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 we're immersed in perversion in the society in which we live. But, I mean, here they were perfectly innocent in with no perversions at all, in perfect unity. How wonderful that had to be. And, and they didn't need any course on submission. They didn't need that because they were perfectly submitted to one another. But here's the problem. And we'll save that story for next week. They weren't perfectly submitted to God. They did not love God. I mean, they told God, oh, I love you. Thank you for all the good goodies you've given us. But to show that they loved God, they needed to submit to God. And he told them not to eat of the forbidden fruit. And as we'll see next week, they ate of the forbidden fruit. Now, there's a great spiritual mystery in all of this too. That God has revealed to us in his word. All of this is nothing but shadows of a much greater spiritual reality. Turn with me over to the book of Ephesians, and we're not going to be here long. I'll be here, we'll be done on time, I think. Go to Ephesians chapter 5, and look down at verse number 29. And he, he, makes a, he makes a common sense point starting out here in verse number 25. He says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. In other words, if, if you're in a Christian marriage and you've become one, you realize what you're doing when you're hating your spouse or you're being mean to your spouse. You're hurting yourself. That, that's the way it works. I mean, I can get mad at Brenda and, and it hurts me worse than it hurts her. Because she don't have a temper like I have. So, so when you, you, I see her hurt, and if I do hurt her, then I feel worse. I don't accomplish anything by 
degrading or being nasty to my wife or you don't accomplish anything women by being nasty to your husband you hurt yourself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as watch this now here's the mystery begins as the lord does the church i you, you understand the lord what he's saying here the lord nourishes and cherishes the church. That's the mystery. I mean, he, in this verse, he nourishes and cherishes the church. That's why he submitted his needs. I mean, here was the Lord of glory, and he emptied himself of glory, and he came to this earth to do what? To, to submit to us, to submit to our needs, to become our servant, to die for us on a cross. The only way we can be saved is through his blood. And he does that for us. He, the Lord nourishes us by his spirit. He cherished us so much that he died for us. For look at this. For just as Adam and Eve were members of one body, we are, verse number 30, we are members of his body. And just as Adam and Eve said to Eve, you're flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones, God says to us, we're his flesh and we're his bones. So, so when we got saved, what happened was we became one with him. How did we become one with him? Bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. Let me tell you how. There's a mystery here. And we looked at this mystery a little bit a couple of weeks ago. You remember after Jesus was crucified and he had died for the sins of the world on the cross. And he met the disciples up in the upper room. And he began to show them the scars in his hands. And he began to show them the scars in his feet, and then the last thing he showed them was the scar in his side. His scar in, the, in his side. And why did he show them the scar in his side? Because if you remember on the cross, and John gives this, the same one who gives you this narrative about Jesus breathing on them and making them uh, part of who he was, the same John, also in his narrative about the cross, tells us in in, 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 in that narrative, that when Jesus gave up the spirit and said, it is finished, at that time, remember, the soldier came and he stuck the spear where? In his side. And out of his side came his blood and came water. Do you see the spiritual picture that's being given to us right there? Just as Eve came out of the side of Adam we came out of the side of Christ when we were given when that blood came out that's the blood that redeems us that's the blood that saves us that's the blood that that uh, gives us life and not only that water came out of that because it's his, it's it's the water of his word that uh, uh, God uses to make us pure and to make us holy and to make us spotless the water he uses to sanctify us so that we become flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. And then listen to what he says in verse 31. He says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But see, that's just a shadow of what we are. We've become one with Jesus Christ. This is a great mystery, he says in verse 32. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. And what's the great mystery? That we are the Eve. We are the bride 
of Christ. If we're been born again, we have become one with him. Remember that night before Jesus died, what Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 14, he says, in that day, and when that day he meant in the day that you believe in me, in the day that you're born again, when I come to that upper room and I breathe on you, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. In other words, you will know that we have become one flesh spiritually. Do you know that? Are you here today? Do you know that? I mean, do you truly know that you've become one with Jesus Christ? That you've been joined to Jesus Christ? If that's the case, and Jesus submitted his life for our best interest by emptying himself of his glory and dying on a cross for our sins, don't you think that he deserves our submission? Don't you think? Don't you think it's time? Listen to what happens here. Looking back at this verse right here, listen to what it says. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. What's the spiritual application of that? We're to leave our old mother and father. We're to leave this world. We're to leave this flesh. We're to leave the devil, and we're to submit to him. And we're to become one flesh with him. That's the way God intended it from the very beginning. For us to be one with him, submitted to him. And if you can't say you love him. You can't say you have faith if you're not willing to be submitted to him. If you're in here today, and I'm warning you, time is short. If you're in here today and you're, you think you've got some kind of ticket punched, and you're just calling yourself a Christian, but you haven't submitted to him, you haven't submitted your life to his will, you're on a road to disaster. And all you have to do is just yield your life to him. And when you lose your life, what happens? You find your life. You find the life that God intended for you. And that's a wonderful life, I promise you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for what you've shown us today about submission, Lord, and most of all about how you submitted yourself to us, how you submitted your will to our will or to our needs. Let's put it that way. Lord, how you gave your life so that we could find life. And Lord, all we have to do now is to yield, yield and submit to your will. Give ourselves to you, Lord, and we find everlasting. We find life for all aspects of our being, Lord. Life for our marriage, life for our home, life for our children, life for our church, life for our nation. Lord, it's all wrapped up in submission to you. Lord, help us to see the areas that we're hanging on to, we're rebelling in, and help us to end that rebellion before it's too late and submit our lives to you. Father, we're a stubborn group of people this human race, Lord. I just ask that you give us lots of grace and bless us, Lord, with your spirit in a powerful way so that we can live for you and be submitted to you and submit to one another. 
Father, we just thank you for all you've shown us today. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.